talk. I want to do a lot of like just just observation in the text today. It's such a cool topic, and let's just go where it takes us because it's you know cosmic, man. cosmic mystery. And um, <clears throat> what was I going to say? It's never not cosmic. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> it's it's a what is what does JP two say? It's the, uh, Horizon, the horizon which we understand. So let's go. Let me pray. And then Addie will just do you, do you edit it? Okay. okay, let's pray. The Lord be with you. Holy Father, we come in the strong and sure name of the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things were made, for whom all things were made in whom all things hold together and uh, as he sums up all things binds all things to himself we pray that uh, our high priest would lift us uh, and draw us ever deeper into your bosom where he has forever been and that would uh, your heart father your character your will be revealed to us in jesus christ um, that you'd search us, uh, that you'd heal us, um, and as we're um, brought up into the, the mysteries of the gospel, uh, the mysteries that make the world what it is, and gives us gives us the language for um, speaking and thinking with integrity and authenticity in this world, I pray that you would transform us. I pray that you'd give us an increase in your joy and delight, uh, and I pray you'd strengthen us in all things, so that we can be people um, with um, great fortitude, resilience in this world, uh, that you would make us fruitful, and that you'd give us eyes to see uh, your grandeur uh, in all things. Give us that uh, marvelous vision. Uh, we pray that we do theology the only way it can be done, uh, in your presence. Um, so be near to us open our lips and open our hearts be glorified in our midst and bind us together as your people bind us together uh, in truth and goodness and beauty we pray all these things in the Lord Jesus Christ's name uh, for your glory for our good amen all right so what I want to do is I just want to pick up I want to pick up and keep going with uh, what we talked about last time uh, we were together um, we talked about the fourfold state, the, the four conditions under which humanity lives. It's, it's the way Augustine frames it, and it's a really good way to do that because it allows us to think about the image of God, uh, you know, correspondingly in, in that fourfold, four, fourfold way. Um, we might talk about that a little bit today and, 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 and bring it into this topic, but today let's 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 talk about um, male and female. He created them. That magnificent text we have here starting in Genesis and how that plays out and gives us this, you know, uh, this horizon in which to understand uh, the mysteries of the gospel. So let me start here, you guys. I want to start uh, in Genesis 1. I'm going to read the first few verses. I'll skip down and just make some, let's, let, let, let's just listen to the word of God and hear some, hear some things and then make some observations about what this means to get us going. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering, brooding over the face of the waters. And God said, there's the fiat that we see over and over, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night, and there was evening and morning the first day, so the liturgical cadence of creation. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and so it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and morning the second day. And so as this text progressed, and we'll put an ellipsis there, what we have is this, you know, forming and filling action of Genesis 1. It's just magnificent. Let me, let me skip down a little bit and pick up in verse 20. We looked at this last time. Let's, make, let's, let's um, punctuate some things and maybe make some more observations here. So down to verse 20. And God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens and film. So God called the great sea creatures, created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them and god blessed them and said to them be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And down to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Let's look at this a little bit and make some observations. First thing I wanna, I wanna say here is, um, do you see the cadence, the let there be? It's the fiat cadence, right? Let there be, let there be, let there be. And then there's a, there's a big departure with the making of humanity, with the making of man, male, and female. It's let us make. Do you guys see that? It's really cool. Fiat, 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 and then project, right? And chapter two is going to slow down and really, really dig into to, to this project. But we see something here, right? A fashioning, a delighting. And by the you know, some of the patristic fathers and, and, and some in the uh, Eastern Orthodox tradition make, make a point of saying um, this project of becoming human is what Jesus, is re what Jesus references with the, 
to tell us that, you know, it is finished. You know, what is finished? We usually think in a, in a kind of more, more narrowly cruciform way. But to, to tell us that it is finished, is Jesus saying, what? The, the project of becoming human, right? The project of becoming human. And you know how John's gospel works, right? It starts out in the beginning. He wants to trigger our minds right back here. To tell us that it is finished. This one who um, takes our humanity into his into the very life and mission of God, takes on the flesh to put off the flesh, which he you know brings to Golgotha, puts it off, right? It is finished, the becoming of, of authentic humanity. What else do you guys see here? created them, right? And the, 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 the language is it's magnificent, right? God created man in his own image. In the image of man, he created him, Adam. Adam is constituted by uh, uh, the duality, let's say for now, of <clears throat> the male and the female. Uh, John Paul II says this. I think it's lovely. This is the horizon on which we behold the total vision of humanity. What it means to be and to become right, authentically human. So what do we see here? All things were made by the overflow, the effulgence of God's triune love. Right? Um, the God who is triune uh, eternally loves the other. Right? Divine love, the love which God is, is always other-directed, other-centered. It bursts forth, right, as, it, as God turns that, that inner triune love outward in creation. It bursts forward in, in, the, in, the, in the making and the blessing of all things, right, that he might bring, all, bring, bring many sons and daughters, right, and all of creation under the, the, in, in the blessedness of that triune love. One of the things that we want to get at and keep, keep pressing into is that what it means to be authentically human is uh, self-giving, right? Love that is self-giving, love that is self-donation, love that is other-centered. Now, we'll talk, we'll talk about the procreative reality that goes on here, right? Humanity has the uh, invitation, that blessed invitation to collaborate with God, right? As we are fruitful and we multiply, we're actually able to participate in God's ongoing creative action as we um, bring forth his image, right? Um, enhancing life and then the procreative realities too. But what we also want to see here is marriage, right? Marriage is, marriage is, is a metaphor, let's say, or hermeneutic of all of scripture. We see it here in the beginning. Um, we see it um, in the fullness of time uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ with his church. And that moves toward that eschatological fulfillment, right, of the marriage feast. So marriage, you know, we can use metaphor, but let's just make sure when we think about metaphor, we don't, we don't think as like an empty, barren figure, but we think more like, you know, pregnant and gravid figure, right? That blessed symbol that brings us into and lets us participate in that grand reality. So it's marriage, and again, like a lot of the patristics said, martyrdom, right? In this, in this horizon, this, this um, total vision of humanity, marriage and martyrdom. They loved to put um, marriage under the category of cross, marriage under the category of martyrdom. So 
what we have here in the creating and the recreating. Yeah, I know I'm getting ahead, but I want to, I want to try to think holistically right off the bat. Um, in the making and remaking of all things, right? Um, the first Adam, the first Eve, the second Adam, the new Adam, the new Eve, <clears throat> um, and the offspring that come from that procreative reality. What we see is marriage, martyrdom, right? Both of which are self-giving, self-donation, other-centered love that brings forth life. Humanity's kind, right? A kind, what we see here. We talked about that the other day. According to their kinds, according to their kind, according to their kind, seven times in verse 20 to verse 26. And, you know, in this little literary masterpiece here, we've got that literary device of cadence, right? Or um, um, uh, it's, it's punctuating for us. According to their kinds, according to their kinds. The measure of a bird is a bird. <clears throat> here, humanity is a kind. Right, a unique species created in the image and likeness of God, whose proper reference is God, right? According to the image, right? This is this is new. It's it's, it's again accentuating, highlighting. Birds aren't the image, right? Creepy crawly things, spiders and night crawlers aren't the image. Humanity, humanity alone is the image. Is the is the uh, is the is the image? Excuse me. So what we have is. Proper referent, true measure of humanity, always God. As opposed to a lot of what we see in modernity, right? Um, the referent of humanity is a lower bar, right? It's the animal, we're glorified animals, and then we live down to that low calling, right? But self-reference, right? self-pronouncement, self-definition, self-referentialism that turns us in upon ourselves, and which is, we might say, the epitome of what it means to be ungodly. If God's love is other-centered, other-directed, right, and, and, and ours is turned in upon the self, you know, with the view to self-actualization or something where we try to gain life and lose it. <clears throat> we'll talk about that under the category of fall. But humanity is a kind, right? Image and likeness of God. We're to image God noun and image God verb, right? Static, dynamic. Humanity is a unified plurality of persons. We'll talk more about this in just a minute, chapter two. Um, why a solitary singularity doesn't image God, right? But a, a unified plurality of persons. Humanity is a corporate embodied unity, sourced in, summed up by <clears throat> um, a representative person. <clears throat> we participate in that person's identity, that person's mission, that person's vocation, that person's destiny. So here what we have is a demic headship, right? Um, we're gonna see, we're gonna see a little bit later, a Christological headship, the second Adam. But here, sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, right? Here, let's use the language of, and we touched on this last time, which is let's make sure we have it, antitype and archetype, right? Jesus Christ, in so much as he is the, is the one chronologically who comes after Adam to undo what Adam has done, right? To remake what he's broken. He's the antitype of Adam. <clears throat> but theologically, he's the archetype. And this is, this is important, right, in creation. So, so that um, Adam isn't the referent of Christ in this way, but Jesus Christ is the kephale, the summing up of all things, right? Um, Paul. Paul talks like that again, cosmic language. First Corinthians 11. Jesus Christ is the kephale of all humanity. 
right? All humanity is sourced in him, all, all humanity is made through him to be conformed to him. That's the, that's the, the vocation of humanity. <clears throat> you guys want to say anything so far? Becca? I have a tangent. Yeah. But um, what do you, how was your response to people in the let us make man in our image, thinking that being like a divine council, I feel like that just makes such a big division between God and man and images. <clears throat> yeah, I think there's a couple. So, you know, that in, in some ways that's the, the rage, right? Yeah. Um, because, because the idea there, among other things, is it wants to respect the historical integrity and authorial intent of this context. <clears throat> but here, here's some things to think about, right? Um, let us make uh, the, the heavenly host isn't, isn't creator, right? In our image, the heavenly host, we don't bear the heavenly host image, right? Um, to whom does God say, you know, you are my son, you are my image, us and us alone. Plus, of course, canonically, right? If we read the text, theologically interpreting scripture, right? When we read it canonically, we know. And that's what, that's what, by the way, that's what John wants us to do. That's why he starts in the beginning and right away. You know, in light of his encounter with the incarnate son, he wants us to reimagine now Genesis. All things remain through him, right? Uh, by him, all things visible, all things invisible. The host, right? The host. Um, apart from him, no thing was made. <clears throat> so it's obviously Trinitarian. Um, and when we get into when we get into chapter two, some of the stuff we want to think about is if we have a if we have a if we hold off on Trinitarian language until the New Testament, right? Then then. Right here, we have a singular, a single solitary God, right? Um, a deistic kind of God, a non-differentiated God. Now we have, now we have to reimagine what that love looks like, right? So, <clears throat> Katie. Humanity sexually dimorphic, right? Male and female, he made them a unitary complementarity. Um, man, mankind, singular, complementary, right? So what we want to think about right here is humanity is constituted essentially, right? We're talking about essential stuff, ontological stuff, male and female, and male and female together, right? Together, male and female constitute the image of God. What we're talking about here is distinction without division, right? Originally, um, without separation, one but not the same, right? That's what Bono says. Do you guys listen to you too? Or are you way too young for that? Um, we're one, we're not the same. Our being not the same is the way in which we can be one without one or the other being redundant. That's really important, right? Um, one not the same means we come together in a holism where neither is redundant. Both are essential. Both, both together and only together authentically constitute image of God. We've got irreducible, indelible distinction manifested, right? Shown forth in bodily realities, the theology of the body that we'll talk about in a little while. That's necessary for true union, right? Two of the same can't come together in true union, right? Um, a second atom uh, is, um, can't complement the first atom in true union, so on and so forth. Um, true union only where there is union with the other. 
right, who remains distinct but never uh, divided. This is not how we think in modernity about male and female, I do not think. Right? Um, male and female are not interchangeable here, right? Um, not redundant, not dispensable, not that. Only together as male and female can we manifest identity and fulfill destiny of humanity. Male and female, he created them, and what we got to want to get into then is male and female, he redeemed himself. Talk to me about that. How, how, do we, how do we tend to think about male and female uh, presently? Someone was quoting the, this gender manifesto to me the other day, saying that there's actually seven sex, like biological sexes instead of male and female, and how that's an expanse of love, and how just as the Bible says he created male and female doesn't mean he also didn't create the other five. One of the, you know, when we talk about forming and filling, which is really fun, what you see in God's creative activity is God brings together what is meant to be together, and he puts asunder what's meant to be put asunder, right? That's part of his, to create um, the context of human flourishing, right? Full orb human flourishing. One of the things that we're going to see with the fall is the coming together of what God has put asunder, the pulling apart of what God has brought together, right? It's decreation. Right, it's it's uh, it's cosmic vandalism that doesn't necessarily hit your point, but let's let's keep talking about that. What it what it does do is the boundaries that God's put in place for human flourishing are being transgressed, right? Not recognized and transgressed. What else? I think the gender is this thing that we try to put on in today's culture, like all I'm gonna like have to choose parts of uh, like manhood or womanhood that most make me feel myself instead of learning who we are in the context of who we were created to be. Okay. It's like forming that identity for ourselves instead of finding that identity, discovering the Lord through us. So we don't, we don't tend to move in essentialist um, <laughs> frames of thinking and speaking and acting. And there's, I mean, there's something to say in terms of, you know, we, we have, we have socially constructed understandings that might be naive or reductionistic, right? Little boys always play with donkeys, you, you know. Um, but there's way more to it than that, right? Um, a being, or an acting, and, a, and a, a, what we want to say, a moving into and fulfilling vocation, which is an ontological reality. What, what is that, what is that, what is that, how does that play itself out then, if we think like that? To, to think about um, these these uh, male and female in terms of maybe like individualistic ways, right? Self-defining, self-referential ways. Um, but we might say um, uh, externalistic ways and performative ways, right? And, and maybe we could even say transactional ways. Does that make sense? Um, we, we tend to think uh, w without an ontology that we're performing gender or something like that. Highly transactional, high, highly, um, you know, doing this, moving into these orbits outside of real ontological unity. But just for a minute, think about the church here for, for a minute. If we think like that, um, if we think that, that Eve can, can um, perform womanhood in a way that isn't rooted in ontology, right? 
um, that life isn't actually that who she is isn't manifest in her body, right? And enacted in her body in God-designed ways, God-purposed ways. Can you see how we might think about the church herself, the new, you know, a woman, the church, in externalistic, performative, transactional ways? What is what is it? Um, it is that dispenser of religious goods and services that I that I engage with in a very external way. Not that I'm not that I'm brought that not that I'm conceived and transformed in her womb as she and her very body make space for me, but in very different kinds of ways. However else we might want to talk about that, I think that we're doing that all the time. We're thinking about external, transactional, merely or or largely performative ways of talking about what it means to be male and female, and of course for it. We can, we can return to that. Let's, let's, let's press in. Humanity's a race, and we talked about that in the fall, um, but I wanna, I wanna hit that again, because it's, man, it's part of creational and redemptive realities, right? It's part of that horizon that we're talking about. We're not just a representative person. We're not just a sexed pair. But as you see, be fruitful and multiply, right? We're, we're ethnically, culturally diverse human family. The generations of our primal parents being a multitude marked by shared lineage, shared legacy, right? The diversity is, is in terms of culture and ethnicity, the ethnos. It's not about a multiplicity of races. We might say something similar to what we say about male and female if we don't get that. If there is a multiplicity of races, what we'll, what we'll tend to do is think, one, they're interchangeable, right? Um, uh, qualitatively inferior, superior, and able to be um, replaced, right? They're redundant. Um, Think about these two texts, right? Acts 17, going right back to creational realities here. And he, God, has made from one blood, one blood, all nations of man to dwell on the face of the earth, from one blood, right? And that, that, that magnificent, you know, again, the horizon, Revelation, that great song, right? They, they, they sing a new song, and they say, worthy are you, Jesus Christ, the bloody lamb, Right. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, right, reconstituting bloodlines, <laughs> by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So what we have here is that, that, that hermeneutic of um, particularity to universality, right? The particularity grounds and helps us interpret the universality, right, and the diversity within it. But if we if we if we if we think we can just interchange that and go from diversity to unity, we can never get there. We can never get there the way scripture talks. So we're a kind, right? We're a, we're a sexually dimorphic, um, unified complementarity. We're a race, right here. At least we want to say that, right? Uh, what what else do you guys want to add? It's so fun with just a few of us here. We can just have at it.
keep going. Let's look at Did you, did you say anti-gender? Anti-gender essentialism. Like, essentialism? Yeah, essentialism. The idea being that uh, male and female must be performed in a particular way. Sometimes when I read uh, theological work on like complementarianism, I feel like I get a lot of, of that sense that there, there is a particular way that man and woman perform their sex. No, I, th I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's, it's, it, it is really about that, you know, particularity, universality, you know, way in which we want to think about these things, and also, you know, what it means, what it means to enact ontology, right? So, you know, I I can guarantee that you and your wife enacted your gender because I see it. I see it in your wife's body, right? And she's enacting her gender as she's actually. We'll talk about this a little bit more. She's actually received. We're we're, we're adults, right? So we talk un, unashamedly about the body. She's actually received your seed, and in her very body, she's made room for that in ways that you never could, right? Would you say that she's enacting sex? 
Yes, yes, her, 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 her womanhood, right? Right in her body. So the, the spiritual realities of what it means to be, to be woman is being enacted, and we might call um, the sacramental manifestation of how she enacts that, right? So um, think about it, right under her heart, right? Right in her, in her bosom, she's making room for life, right? Her very body is, is the context of human transformation. Right. By the way, if we don't think about that, so long to the church. The church is performative, transactional, external. Right. She's doing that. She menstruates and lactates. You do not. Right. So there's something there that's that's a universal particularity to male and female. Now, I'm pretty sure our primal parents' marriage, one flesh union, looks different than mine and yours in a whole lot of ways. Right. So I don't think we want to reduce the universal aspects to something like, you know, I work on the car, Katie does the dishes. <laughs> and that's how everybody should do those things. I don't think that at all. Um, and I don't, I don't even think that, I think it's dangerous ground, dubious ground to, to start to say something like there are um, merely archetypical male and female virtues. Um, that aren't possessed by both. I think it's way better to say um, men and women inhabit, possess human virtues and manifest those in typically, typically male and female ways. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, 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 you know, theologians, right? To, to, to be a, a female theologian, I think, is to inhabit that, that vocation with a, with a distinctly female voice. Julie Campbell, if you know her, does it so wonderfully, so wonderfully. But if male and female, let's talk about this for a minute if we can. If male and female, if we can see them as first, first oppositional, right? That's right out of that's right out of Genesis three. Now the relationship's oppositional. Now it's a power dynamic. Who gets power? Who's taking it from whom? And and we start to talk in merely external ways or or socially constructed ways, then, then we can start to say one of those sexes is redundant. And if you watch, um, do you guys know who Jonathan Peugeot is? I should send you, uh, send you a couple of things he does. He's an Eastern Orthodox um, icon carver. He's just a really cool social pundit, but one of the things he does is he looks at, at movie tropes, cultural tropes, right? And what, what you'll see in so many, so many tropes is um, the ascendance of the female, not in a, not in a cafe way, where, where, where this is wonderful, right? And we, and we delight in the, the distinctly feminine genius. But he says what we're seeing actually is um, the, the ascension of the female in our culture to, to the retirement, the abdication, the male. She's replacing the male. Um, the male's incompetent, inferior, dull. He's gotten he's gotten where he is because um, he's stolen it or something like that. And you're seeing a seeding over and over. I'll, sh I'll, I'll, I'll show you. But it's really cool because a lot of these movies are movie reboots, right? So the movies I grew up with, it's, you know, um, what, Ghostbusters and all the Marvel comics and everything like that, right? Um, where you're, Mad Max, where you're seeing a seeding over uh, Star Wars. Seeding over, not that that we're seeing um, real profound complementarianism, but we're seeing that one is redundant and has to go away, and he's now collaborating in his own self-abdication. Right, where he just retires. 
I don't think that that's a social atonement that we're doing, but I don't think it's redemptive, right? Let's keep let's keep pressing in. Let's think about these things. So let's look at look at Genesis two, right? Because we say we, we have fiat, we have fiat, and then we have um, and then we have project. Let us make, not let there be. Let us make. Oh, by the way, I want you. Gosh, we gotta we gotta cook, but I want you to see something else. Have you ever noticed this? God makes all the animals, right, uh, and tells them, be fruitful and multiply. It's only to the humans that he says, male and female, he created them. Really interesting, right? Like, we were talking about foxes. There are male and female foxes. You better believe it. They have to be that to be fruitful and multiply. They, too, correspond to the pattern of creation. But male and female. Right? What we're going to see in this one flesh union as we, as we, as we ramp into it is animals mate. Right? Um, uh, they perpetuate a species, a kind, um, but animals don't have sex. Right? Animals aren't one flesh union. There's something distinct here that, that, that um, is being put before us. So let's start with, um, let's press into Genesis 2. Let me start in verse 7, and then I'll jump down to verse 15. Then the Lord God formed, right? Let us make, now now we see see a a lower level um, engagement here. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the ruah, right? The breath of life. And man became a living creature. Now, Animated, right? A psychosomatic unity in soul, body, embodied soul. Jesus Christ now breathes into us the living spirit, right? Life-giving spirit. Um, so there, there's something else that's going on here, but uh, down there in terms of recreation, something grand. But uh, there's a breathing of life into his nostrils, an, anim- an animation of, of, of the man by the, by the breath of God. Now jumping down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it ennobled, right? And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. This is huge. Eve Eve doesn't exist yet. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat, you will surely die. And then the Lord God said, it's not good. It's not good that man should be alone, right? We've heard that cadence of it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's very good. There's no sin, right? The first negation, the first, oh, not good, and not good at all is prior to sin. It's that the man is a solitary man, right? The original solitude. I will make him a helper, necessary ally, we might say, fit for him, right? Um, to compliment him. Now, <clears throat> out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. You see what's going on here? Adam's imaging God, right? In the beginning, the earth was formless and void, chaos that needed order, and God spoke and brings order out of chaos. Now he says to Adam, speak. Speak, speak into this, um, what, clucking, cooing, braying, neighing, chaos, 
and bring order and name, right? Assert in, in a holy way, assert, speak and assert your imago deiness, right? Put your impress, um, name according to character and vocation, destiny, these things. <clears throat> use your, you might say this, use your strength to bless, right? Create space for shalom. Whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. God names Adam, Adam names the creatures. And man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. There's some heuristic learning going on here, right? <laughs> Rhinoceroses, no. Monkeys, no. Nothing fit for him, right? Nothing according to his kind. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs. We might say there's a wordplay there in Hebrew, um, life, right? From, from caused him to sleep, and from his open side, life, right? Ontological unity. <clears throat> and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then he said, whoa, he becomes a poet, right? This is at last, right? not seeing anything, not seeing anything. I'm, I'm, I'm marinating in my solitude. This is at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man, right? There's sourcedness there. Um, by the way. This is the pinnacle of creation, right? This is where creation stops. Not, not just, you know, um, uh, broadly speaking with the creation of humanity, but with the woman, right? She's the pinnacle of creation. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, cleave, right? Leaving and cleaving, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. What we see here is original solitude. Right? Self-giving love is humanity's raison d'etre, right? Um, we exist for that. We image God that way. Um, that's the reason we are at all. Um, it's our vocation, right? We find our fullness there. It's the goal of our existence. There's a real longing for connection here. There's a real longing for meaning. And that's how we image God. And the man right now, right, is alone, surrounded with the self. Now here, right, now we can, we can talk in Trinitarian terms, right? We're, we've got a canonical uh, hermeneutic, theological hermeneutic here. God's a multiplicity of persons, right? One but not the same. Father, Son, and Spirit. You know, the Son, not a redundancy of the Father, right? By the way, not interchangeable with the Father. There's, 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 there's content structure to the way God, God's existence and the way God is and the way God acts in the world. Adam being a solitary self can't image God unless God is a solitary self, a self ever merely turned in upon oneself. Right? If God's not Trinity, then whatever it means that God eternally loves prior to creation means God loves in, in a merely self-reflexive way. And God creates so that God can learn to do something that is not of God's inherency, right? not of God's nature. Uh, the singular solitary self 
not good, God says. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Pretty cool. What we have here is this original unity, right? A shared ontology before the breaking of the world, a common humanity with complementary differences. Um, the necessary ally relationship between male and female means the man can only enact his maleness in the presence of the female. Right? The female can only enact her authentic femaleness, the genius of who she is, uniquely she is, before God and before humanity. She can only do that in the presence, right? the holy redemptive, the holy presence of the male. And this is revealed bodily. This is bone of my bone, this is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Ish in the Hebrew, right? She shall be called Ish because she was taken out of, I'm sorry, she should be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish, right? Now, in that semantic domain, um, I think we're, we're talking about bodily realities here. She shall, she's the perforated one. She was taken out of the pointed one. <laughs> Right. The pointed and perforated one. The very structure and shape of our bodies are meant to complement one another, right? Um, as male and female are. And by the way, in that joining of one flesh union, there's, there's a reunion, right? She's taken out, and there's a joining here, right? Really, really cool. For this reason, for this very reason, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this one flesh union that's life enriching, right? It's life enriching, not just procreative, right? It's life enriching. <clears throat> and life producing occurs outside of the man's body. We, we enact our maleness that way. Um, your, your procreative action, my procreative action, happens outside of my body as I enter into the body of another, right? One flesh union. Now, a woman's uh, a woman's most basic relationships all happen within her body, right? Husband, <laughs> children happens within her body. It's the theology of the womb, right? Um, there's something significant, right? Uh, the man outside of that situation, outside of that, receiving life, right? Cutting umbilical cord. <laughs> We enact maleness and femaleness in, in different ways, profoundly complementary ways, profoundly that. And here we have this nuptial, nuptial meaning of the body, right? Um, JP2 I have here in your notes. The body's capacity of expressing that love precisely in which the person becomes a gift and by means of this gift, self-donation, right? Fulfills the very meaning of being and existence. Let's just put, let's put this down so we can get back to it in a little while. Let me talk about it maybe a little bit now. Let's just let it, let it hover and we'll press into it. <clears throat> the, the question that, that we would tend to ask moderns, that's a good question, it's a really good question, but we tend to, we tend to go to the exception rather than the rule, right? We tend to, to exonerate the, the exception. What if you're not in one of these unions, right? Um, am I not able to enact my humanity? Am I, am I profoundly deficit? No, we're not. We're not single, right? What we have here is a hermeneutic of, of, of it's a cosmic hermeneutic, right? All of humanity is participating in two marriages, right? 
this one in the creation of all things, this one in the recreation of all things, all who are in Christ, right, are participating in that. These grand marriages, which are life-enriching and procreative, um, calls, forth, calls forth male and female. And we enact that in terms of being, you know, for the male, fathers, brothers, sons, right? For the, for the woman, mothers, sisters, daughters. Um, not merely biologically, right? There's ways we'll want to talk about that. But in no sense should we ever talk about a person as single, solitary, right? Not participating. There's a place in which we belong. There's a telos into which we're to live, right? And to belong to, belong to not only this race, but the fulfillment in this race in Christ Jesus means that um, there's, no, there's no way in which we could ever be singular or single in the sense of being not only solitary but autonomous, um, uncommitted to anybody. That, that word single comes right out of the sexual revolution, right? Being that I belong to no one and I'm self-referential, I can, I can engage with my body and other, engage my body with other people's bodies in any way without any commitment, right? Without fulfilling any vocation or without, without revealing and enacting as it as it ought to be. So we should just like, you know, I don't like throwing out words, but we should just use that for like, you know, single scoops of ice cream and things like that. People aren't that. They just aren't that. They can't be that. It's impossible. Um, if you have a belly button, you're not single. It means you you were profoundly from the very moment of your conception, utterly, profoundly ontologically connected and dependent upon the other. And they were naked. Time ago. They were naked. <clears throat> they were wholly present, open, in a good sense of vulnerability, right? There's a, there's a bad sense where it's dangerous and demeaning and um, all of that. <clears throat> but vulnerable in the best way. Wholly present, wholly open to one another, free of. And we can't, we, we can't really, like, experientially even grasp this, right? We don't, we don't live in that way. To be utterly, utterly devoid of, free from all fear but holy reverence of, of God and the other, right? Servile fear, but, you know, that kind of fear. We've never been free of it. That's, we're, we're waiting for that. But here we have it. Free of fear, free of alienation, free of mistrust, free of suspicion, free of estrangement, free of competition, free of opposition, free of confrontation, free of shame, free to be fully with the presence of another, for the other, and to offer oneself as gift to the other, right? Original nakedness, original solitude. By the way, you know, when we talk about original solitude, it's not, it's not purely bad, right? There, there's a sense of the self, right? Identity, which isn't individualism, but identity. There's got to be real identity for the ground of actually giving oneself to the other without enmeshment, we would call it, right? There's that. Um, Adam is the self. It's not good for that self to be a solitary self, for the individual to be isolated. Now he's for the other. One flesh union, naked mess. I think I want to say 
thinking about the act of like naming, even like in today's age, everyone wants to be able to name themselves and how that is just like fighting against depending on another. And I think it comes from a fear of like power, of like abuse of power. Um, and so it's hard to even think of like, I mean, that's like a valid fear. And so, yeah, just thinking about how like how crazy it is that we can trust that the names that we've been given mm -hmm. were given out of love. Um, the power to bless. Right? Yeah. yeah. Naming is the power to bless. So right. you could think of a situation, right, uh, where you would say, I was given a name, Yeah. right? Um, you know, let your imagination fill in the blanks there. And that name is so horrific, right? right? Um, I want I I a baptismal name. Yeah. <laughs> Sure, but but we're, we're we're called to you know we don't tend to we don't tend to think about people that way so we don't think about the, the, the profundity of the name right a name is a call right um, you perform your name you know we named our, our son William our firstborn right what is he supposed to be protector strong right um, the aspiration the hope is live into that name. Self-naming, self-lordship, right? Self-definition. That's how we tend. How we tend to be. Now, let, let's talk about um, the, the way in which um, bodily realities perform spiritual truths, right? How in the body we're brought up, bodily realities were brought up into the mysteries of the gospel, <laughs> right? Yeah. Before you go on, is there such thing as like a stewardship there right so so um, what we do when we tell our story is we don't write our story so much as we um, we, we, we narrate hopefully right what the Lord is doing there so um, um, we want to be people of the truth as we tell that story right not, not make it up or anything like that and so it's important for us to tell that story in a way that that, that um, that manifests, engages with, and finds our finds ourselves right. So we discern ourselves in the telling of our story. We're actually maybe maybe pronouncing names, but but it's a, it's an act of discernment, right? Uh, I am I am a true son of God. Being, being you know, say your upbringing's rough, right? And and you you received lots of names in your poem of origin, and they weren't good, right? Now I'm, I'm telling that story as God tells my story, 
and I am, uh, I am, I am uh, finding that I have other names, and I'm calling, I'm, I'm affirming those, calling. I am the son of God. I'm, I'm accepted and the beloved. I am this. I am, I am this. But it's not a self-naming in terms of, of a desire to self-actualize, but it's a discernment of, of um, what, what, what is what is embedded into um, the story of redemption. I you would say. So I do. I mean, in that sense, I do. I do think that um, that we're always doing that, or and we're doing it to one another too, right? Um, be really careful with that. Do you guys see uh, right here um, the, the performing of ontology? If we could say something like in Genesis two, um, Adam is called to image God as he speaks into that which is formless and void, to use his strength to bless, to make a room for shalom. Right, to to discern. Right. By the way, what does he say? I am Isha. Right. He's pronouncing that. He's echoing a divine naming. Right. He's saying it's true. Amen and amen. And he's enacting that. What does it What does it What does it mean? Or what does it look like here? At least. And we're not talking about you know um, totalizing. But what does it mean for Eve? You know, who is Eve? How does she enact her ontology? got to at least say a couple things, because when we get to Genesis 3, when we see the, the pronouncements of judgment, they're specific to the, to the man and the woman. They're not the same. They're specific. She is to use um, her beauty to invite, right? to, to in, embrace the life of the other. She finds her vocation in um, taking Nourishing, nurturing, and bringing to fullness that, right? The way she relates is, by way of her very anatomy, different from the, from the way that, not utterly different, not that there's any type, any type of um, <laughs> unifying features. That's not the case, but different. It's got to be different. It seems like, maybe I'm overthinking this, but it seems like man, like, gives first and then receives, like, in both pre and post fall, and then women like receive first to then send out. Is, is that a good way to think about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so so when we when we talk about um, the way God is, right? God. When we talk about, let's say this really specifically, Christ in the church. She, the church, right? She is. She is. She has a womb and breasts, right? She is receiving the seed. It's the, it's the way Peter talks, right? We've been born again by the imperishable seed of the gospel, right? In the presence of Jesus Christ, presence with his church, he enters into her, pours forth his seed. She receives seed. New conception happens, and it happens right in the womb of Holy Mother Church. She cannot produce seed. She can receive seed. She can cherish, nourish seed in her womb transformation can happen, right? For the man, he gives seed, he enters in. But also for like the land, I, I am just seeing it yeah. play out in so many different ways, you know, mm -hmm. like, and that being like an expression of your gender in more like definitive, like concrete ways. Like yeah. Like, so now, you know, if I see something like, you know, 
we see with the, with the males, he uses his strength to bless. Yeah. That doesn't mean, oh, and, and the female has no strength, and her strength isn't a blessing. It's just an exit in a, in a different way. And, and it, would, it would be a, a forfeiture and a, and a demeaning of her calling to say, I should do that just like the man. Right, so for, for a calling upon the woman is be a better man than your husband or your brother's work. That, that, that's actually misogynist, right? It's not who she's called to be, right? Enact the, the, the genius of, your, of the feminine and rejoice in it as a gift of God. Don't despise it and, and want, to, want to conform yourself to typically male ways of being, right? You have the same virtue, but you steward it in a, in a, in a female way. I think there's something, something really, really important in, in modernity. Um, again, watch movies. What you usually, what you usually see is the, the ascendance of the woman is, lo and behold, she's, a, she's, she's more BA than the guys were. She's tougher all the same. Now look at someone like Galadriel, right? Is she strong? Does she, does she know how to like pierce and undo people with her wisdom and her beauty? Is she terrible? She is, but she's, she's not strider, she's not that. I'm thinking about the parallels between male and female and then Christ and the church. And I feel like I can understand the church and its function because I understand womanhood because I experience womanhood. Yeah. But what does it mean for man, uh, if you're thinking with that analogy, like how does man model Christ and prudence of the church? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, he's got to, he's got to model Christ, and so in being conformed to Him, right? For for the man, there's something there that the edges of us need to be need to be knocked off. Like let's just say, if we if we say the church isn't it, does that change the way you might relate to the church? <clears throat> if we say the church is He, right now now if, I, we're being recorded. Every we're always recorded <laughs> all the time now. Everything I say is recorded. I could name a whole bunch of pastors, and I'd say, I have a feeling that this pastor doesn't, you, and prominent people, you, you, would, you would know, not, pe- not people here, but you know what I mean. Um, I have a feeling that, that this person thinks about the church as an it, if at all, and he thinks about, um, he doesn't have a place for Holy Mother. Doesn't, doesn't have a place in his formation for Holy Mother. And if that's the case, then, if the church is holy mother, is the church the place that like we talk about transformation, right? Or is the church transactional? There's a, there's a big difference. It'll really play out. We want to we want to we want to move into this. Yeah. make as her aspiration to be a better man than a man. Okay, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, and then I think about like women being called to imitate Jesus, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, is it is it a problem? Should we treat it as like a theological problem that that our God doesn't know what it's like to have a period, let's say, and and inhabit a woman's body and like 
especially for like women imitating Jesus, uh, who's a man who like has a penis and presumably still does in his resurrected body. For sure, still does. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Now immortalized with a male body, uh, or I mean, like his male body has been assumed into the Godhead. The female body has not been assumed into the Godhead, or, or maybe has, or in the sense of like the church, because it's weird because they'll say like the church is the body of Jesus, but the church is also a sheep. So it's just for some reason sometimes I feel like there is a mixing of metaphors. Maybe says something profound. Uh, <clears throat> I think it, I know what you mean. I think I think it does. It's, it, it's, it's not a mixing of metaphors so much as we're talking about the ultimate things, right? And so we're we're getting at avenues, right? Avenues that you know, taking a taking a magnificent gem, multifaceted, and, and turning it like this, so, so so the light refracts off different facets. And we're we're saying this, but we're not we're not trying to like define. Right, like we, I would never hear one say, like, let's define a woman. No remainder, you know, nothing, no, no rough edges, nothing like that. But we want to say really basic, essential things here. So, let me show you something. Go to Ephesians, if you, if you will. We can jump around, right? We can do that. <clears throat> um, I want to talk about the breaking of the world in a minute, but I want you to see this. I, I think that I, I didn't see this for a while, and this was this was something that I discovered later. Actually, John Calvin helped me see it, um, which which seems out of sorts for what many people might think about Calvin. But man, he gets this. Ephesians one, toward the end here. Where, where do you jump into this Pauline sentence? It's a mile long. Oh dear. Okay, so that he, let's take verse 20, let's start there. That he, that being the Father, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavens, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things, the Father put all things under his, the Son's feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, comma, which is his body, right? So in, in Pauline theology especially, the bodies that we want to talk about that keep coming up is the body of Jesus Christ, the body of the second person of the Trinity. God enacts his godness in and through, definitively, the body of Jesus Christ. Now the body of Jesus Christ isn't merely external to our bodies, but now we want to talk about our bodies, right? Our enactment of, of, of our personhood as we relate to the body of the church. So the, the body of the second person of the Trinity, that ultimate body, right? The, the canon of not only the body of the church, but our bodies. Now think about 1 Corinthians for Paul. Don't you know that your body is for the Lord and the Lord is for your body? Therefore, honor God in your body. I, a good way to read 1 Corinthians is about, it's about the body of Christ, the body of the church and our bodies. How, how we enact, uh, how we recognize, discern, and then enact what's true there. But here, back to Ephesians for a minute. Put, gave him his head over all things to the church, comma, which is his body. In the Greek, Paul says, indeed, truly, it's his body. Like, don't you dare um, eviscerate this of substance and think it's a cute way of talking. Which is his body, the fullness 
of him who fills all in all. Think about that. God says that, that he considers himself complete with the spouse, right? with the church. He considers himself complete. So when we talk about, for God so loved the world, he sent the Son, we don't, we don't say, for God was so devoid and deficit, right? Not out of plenitude, he says, but out of paucity, right? So barren and bereft um, that it motivated him to seek. For God, in his fullness, so loves the church that he gives his Son. And in that self-giving love, having made all things for himself, um, he will not, he refuses to be who he is apart from us. He'll overcome all things, sin and death, the breaking of the world. He refuses to be who he is apart from us, and he will not relent, and he will not consider himself complete except in the one flesh union with his bride. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he redeemed them. It's not good for Adam to be alone. It's not good for Christ to be alone. He refuses to be, right? <clears throat> We call this uh, Christus totus, the total Christ, the whole Christ. How do we consider, how do we think about Christ? Christ and His bride, Christ and His bride. Never Christ devoid of His bride. Christ and His bride. He's head, she's body. Not interchangeable, not replaceable, not redundant. Right. Um, we learn how to enact our maleness and femaleness and get all of all the rough edges, or we should, you know, here as we're reparented by God mothered in the life of the church there. So in this one flesh union, there is experience, there's not duplication, but there is experience here of these, of these profound things. Um, now think about that. We'll go to Ephesians 5 in a little while. Yeah, we'll get there. But, but the grand marriage, right, is to inform, hopefully sanctify ours, right, transform ours. So the same gets carried out Right? There's parallels there. I, you know, me being me, say to one, you know, what, Katie, 1986, we got engaged. Um, uh, I am me, not, not, you know, not a ring wraith, not destitute, you know, not that. I'm not saying make something of me. I'm horrible. I'm nothing. I am me. I never want to be who I am apart from you ever again. Your story is my story. Right, when you hurt, I hurt. Um, I know you. <laughs> I do not menstruate, I promise you. Um, but I have experiential knowledge in a profound way of that, right? Acts 9, um, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you lay a hand on my bride, my body, which I love, you persecute me. So we're brought into that. So. This is enacted, we'll look at Ephesians 5 in a couple minutes, but it's enacted on a human level. It should be all the time. I refuse to be who I am apart from you. Um, I want my lineage, my legacy, my history, my narrative. Um, I bring to this all that I am. Um, so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, just kind of carrying on this idea again of how, the, how Christ like, experiences the the, the feminine aspect of the human existence, mm -hmm. he is you know, a male, and you affirm that. Um, what role would you say that that Mary plays in that? Because um, like he obviously dwelled in her, and there's this um, reality of though he didn't 
you know, experience the woman's body in and of himself. He, he did in some way experience there. And I know that throughout the history of the church, and I mean, the Roman Catholic Church does a lot more with this yeah, than Protestants do. Wonderful stuff, too. Um, but I guess, um, does that tie at all also to, to the understanding of how the Lord interacts with yeah, so, the, so the, the first Eve and the first woman comes from the first man. Thereafter, all people, male and female, come from her. She is the mother of life, right? She's the mother of life. Our Lord, God Almighty, right, um, sanctifies that and honors it, including the second person of the Trinity, right? Including him. The second person of the Trinity enters into a Right. Um, Mary makes room. Right. She's doing. There, there's a there's a recapitulatory reality here. The first Eve. Did God really say? Yeah. Right. And the world falls. Be it unto me according to your word. She receives the word. Right. She receives the word. The word comes to her. She receives the word. And she conceives. Right. And, and the word bears fruit. She makes she makes room in her body for the word. It's just awesome. It's just just awesome. <clears throat> should we should we break now, or should we talk about the breaking of the world? <laughs> yeah, I could too. Let's break, and then we'll we'll talk about that, and we'll we'll we'll, we'll press in. We're doing some of some of the same type of schema, right? Uh, the fourfold state, working through this. What, is it, what does it look like for male and female? He created them now, now to live um, in the breaking of the world. And, and how do we enact that in our bodies and so on and so forth? And what does it look like to be reconstituted in Jesus? Let's take a break.